So good morning. My name is Harry Strauss. I'm part of the pastoral staff here at Forest Grove Community Church, and I work with adults in the second half of life. Uh, we call it Encore Ministries. I've been gone most of the summer, so uh, just like as Chandra, it is good to be back and to be uh, good to be in this setting here uh, with all of you. Uh, we have some special guests with us today, a group of evangelical leaders from various places in the world, all associated with the World Evangelical Alliance. I think we have at least uh, five or six countries that are represented by this group. They are in the city as part of the Evangelical Catholic Dialogue, the International Evangelical and Catholic Dialogue. And the International Dialogue consists of five Catholics and eight Evangelicals. And we are honored to have, I think the number is Nick, five with us here this morning and uh, part of uh, our experience with us. And they are hosted by Nick Jessen, the Ecumenical Officer for the Saskatoon Catholic Diocese. So the five of you, and Nick, would you? I would invite you to stand so we can take a moment to acknowledge you as the people of uh, Forest Grove here. Good to have you here. So thank you. So we welcome you to our city and more specifically to Forest Grove Community Church this morning. And uh, thank you very much for joining us. We're really honored by your presence with us. Uh, related to their work, uh, there will be two public meetings, one tonight and one later this week. So if you were interested in these meetings, more information can be found at Saturday's Star Phoenix, the religion page. Or if you don't get the paper, send me an email this afternoon in the early part of the afternoon. I'm harry at forestgrovecc.com and I'll get the information to you by way of email. So today I want to remind us of some incredibly good news. Uh, our foundational text is Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 1. Using the NIV 2011 version, it reads, The beginning of the good news, and there you get the words, The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's always of value to be reminded of the good news that we have in Jesus Christ. But perhaps even more so today, given the measure of bad news, sad news, that we are constantly exposed to. It is impossible to click on your TV or open up a web browser or read the paper without being confronted by bad news. Uh, we are inundated, and I think it's fair to use that word, that we are inundated with bad news day by day, week by month, week, month by month. Now, the world isn't falling apart, but sometimes it sure can feel like it. The news can be violent, it can be depressing, it could be unsettling, it could be emotionally charged, it could be sad, and certainly it could be very painful. Never before in the history of humanity have people been exposed to as much media news and much of that as bad or negative. A hundred years ago, if a disaster happened in some other corner of the world, much of that news would have remained localized. Today, it's different. We are connected to a pipeline, literally, a steady diet of unsettling happenings. And of course, this week, if you were at all listening to the news, um, is no exception. There were some really painful and sad things that are happening in the world, 
And again, we hear that and we hear that and we hear that. And it's not that we don't hear good news. We do. But when we hear it, it usually is related only once. Bad news, on the other hand, is covered ongoing from every angle until the story has run its full course. And it's suggested by some all of this is happening when the world is in the midst of a decades-long trend of actually becoming better, safer and healthier and more humane. We just have this news, this painful news, shouted into our ears ongoing, day by day and week by week. Today, in this setting, I want to bring some counterbalance And I want to remind you of some of the phenomenally good news that we have related to the message of Jesus Christ. And by the way, we need to hear the bad news. We want to be informed with what's happening in the world. But can we hear that bad news within the overall context of the good news associated with the message of Jesus Christ? So, Mark chapter 1. I read through the Gospel of Mark this past summer when I first read Chapter 1, verse 1, I was struck by the words good news in that verse, which prompted me then, as I ran through the Gospel of Mark, to look for every expression or every example or every evidence of good news reflected by Jesus and his disciples in this Gospel. So there are many that could be cited, but I've chosen to narrow it down to three and integrate them together, but three different thoughts. So, number one, we're going to make a shift here. So, to these three different items of good news reflected in the Gospel of Mark. With each one, I have a verse or two verses of Scripture. So, the first one is Mark chapter 2, verse 10. And the idea here, the first one, is that uh, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. Mark 2, 10, with Jesus speaking, he says, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The context here is the story of a paralyzed man who was brought to the house where Jesus was. But because there was no room left in the house, the four men carrying the paralyzed man made an opening in the roof and lowered the mat on which the man was lying down in front of Jesus. Now, that wouldn't work with my house, and that wouldn't work with your house either, that someone would make a cut a hole in the top of my roof and lower someone down. But it worked in that setting that many years ago. Capernaum was the location. Capernaum today is an excavated archaeological site, and one can see what would have been the homes from 2,000 years ago. So it's possible that the very home where this healing occurred, the spot, that, that, that building, at least the walls of it would, be physical, it would be visible today. So again, going back to the story, somewhat surprisingly, the first thing Jesus says to this paralyzed man is, Son, your sins are forgiven. I think we have to assume, given the divinity of Jesus, he knew that this man was not only suffering physically, but equally in some ways he was paralyzed by the guilt and shame of his own sin. The text doesn't say if there was a direct relationship between his spiritual condition and his physical illness. We don't know, but maybe it was. But we know this surprising statement by Jesus of this man who was paralyzed. The first thing he says Son, your sins are forgiven, giving priority to the sin problem. Five simple words of freedom, liberating words, we would assume for the man on the mat. Now, our guess here, my guess is that 
in all likelihood, they are acquainted with the penitential rite that is used in Catholic services. Catholics have usually in their service a time for the confession of their sin. And they do this, I think, basically every Sunday. The wording for that confession will vary from week to week, but one that they use speaks of of their sinfulness and the need for, for, for forgiveness. I'm originally from a Catholic background, and I remember uh, praying this prayer as a child and certainly as a teenager as well. But I want to relate it to you, and it speaks of the, of the need for forgiveness together. And maybe they're doing it across the street this morning at the Catholic uh, the cathedral as they worship together. But if they were using this penitential rite, they would say this, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters. So they might be a group of a thousand people across the street, but they'll take a moment to kind of, in a sense, together, collectively, and maybe they might even look around, saying, I confess to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts, in my words, and in what I have done, and what I have failed to do through my fault. Through my fault, through my grievous fault. And then the confession goes on to ask for forgiveness. Some immediate observations about that statement is, uh, clearly Catholics identify themselves as sinners and in need of forgiveness. It's a very thorough confession. Confession of sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful actions, and sinful inaction of that which they failed to do. Given the spirit of the statement, it reminds me to a little extent or to a certain extent of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector with Catholics identifying with the tax collector because they confess that I have not just sinned, but then I have greatly sinned in what I've said, what I've thought, what I've done, and maybe what I haven't done. So the statement is very much in the vein of the passage or the verse that we talk about, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then the worship leader will respond after they've made that statement, something to the effect of, may Almighty God have mercy on us and forgive us our sins and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. And it is understood from the rest of the service that forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. As we come this morning with our own sin, our own guilt, our own shame, and maybe points of disappointment in what we have thought, in what we have said, or in what we have done, or maybe in what we have failed to do, the good news, the fantastic news, is there is one who has authority to forgive sin. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus has authority to say to anyone in this room, wrestling with guilt and shame this morning, Jesus has the authority to say, Son, Son, your sins are forgiven. And you should be able to sleep tonight. Or equally say, Daughter, your sins are forgiven. And have the capacity to sleep tonight. Because there is one who is the authority as the Son of God to say and to declare to you, you are forgiven of 
your sin. And for us, you know, here's this gentleman who was healed on the other side of the cross. We're on this side of the cross. We have the advantage of living on all the full revelation of the New Testament and the cross event and the revelation that came with the New Testament. We have the advantage even of Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all fullness and wisdom. There is one who has authority to forgive sin. That is actually fantastic news. Incredible news. And again, if you were a black congregation, you'd say amen. You really would. Fantastic news. And those of you who are wrestling with sin this last week and weren't sleeping at night because of it, you know that this is incredibly fantastic news for you this morning. Just be reminded of that and take hold of that by faith. There is one who has authority to forgive us of our sin. Two, moving to the second one. <clears throat> Those who get right with God usually then live more productive and fruitful lives. A general observation is that there's a redemption and lift kind of effect. People are lifted to more productive living because there is a stewardship perspective about God, others, and life in general. Forgiveness, initial and ongoing, brings health, vitality, focus, and clarity of life, which generally translates into an added fruitfulness of life. So point number two is there, there is fruitfulness. There is anticipated fruitfulness for the person walking with the Lord. The Gospel of Mark is due. The other Gospels reflects this fruitfulness. The verse I've selected is the parable of the sower, Mark 4.20. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what, what, what was sown. Again, the context of that is the parable of the sower. A farmer sowing seed had some seed fall on the path, some on the rock, some among the thorns, and then some on good soil. When you think of this parable, don't envision a field in Saskatchewan, a farmer's field. That is not what this is like. Rather, picture a hilly landscape, largely rocky, with a winding pathway with some cultivated patches of dirt. And the farmer goes along and he's sowing seed, trying to keep it just primarily on the patches of cultivated dirt. As the seed is sown, seed on the path or on the rocks or among the thorns don't produce anything. But the seed that fell on the good soil, or the seed that falls on good soil, which assumes a forgiven heart, up-to-date in relationship with God, produces 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, and even more. We have a small garden. When I say we, Judy and I, and um, like maybe about 300 square feet in our backyard, and we, uh, that little garden is dedicated to vegetables. And so we, um, we, we basically have a garden salad every day from our garden. I plant seeds maybe two or three times through the uh, summer season. So we've got lettuce, tomatoes, and cucumbers, and etc. Of the tomatoes, we grow not only the large tomatoes, but also the cherry tomatoes. Now, tomatoes can either be determinate tomatoes or indeterminate tomatoes. And as the word suggests, when you get determinate plants, they are a more determined size, usually growing two to three feet as a, as a bush. Whereas an indeterminate plant, as long as there's room to growth and to grow, and as long as there is support for that growth, the plant will grow and grow and continue to produce an abundance of fruit. So last year we had this little cherry plant, one little plant that went up all along the side of the fence and filled the whole side of the fence, and then our neighbor's crabapple tree comes over our fence, and then this plant decided just to 
crawl up, keep going up along this crabapple tree. But I tell you, we had cherry tomatoes just from this one little plant that produced and produced. Jesus is talking about that kind of fruitfulness. The forgiven follower of Christ bears fruit some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. The temptation of life sometimes is to feel our limitations, to measure our life, and to assess lack, inadequate, and to view fruitfulness as not only lack, but limited. Whereas God wants us to think in terms of this picture, these pictures that are here with the parable of the sower and the picture of fruitfulness reflected throughout the Word of God, God wants us to picture life as one of abundance. The promise, the good news, is that as forgiven and sanctified people endeavoring to be good soil, we will be producing fruit. My guess is we oftentimes have so much fruit around us, but we fail to celebrate it and see it and assess it and say, this is wonderful. It's an appropriate mindset, and it's really a biblical mindset. (laughs) Earlier this week, I was reading through the book of Genesis, and still there, and I read the story of Rebecca. And more specifically, I was struck by her blessing that her father and brother that gave to her on her departure to go and be went to Isaac. I've never seen this before, but they say to her, just a short little line, they say, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. Talk about a beautiful statement about fruitfulness as reflected in the Word of God. And that fruitfulness, not only with Rebecca, and it comes through in different places of Scripture as well, but, uh, you know, some might say, well, Rebecca was a young gal and she had all of life in front of her, but what about me? I'm an older person and I'm in maybe the last third of my life or maybe even the last quarter of my life and, oh, who knows, maybe even the last eighth of my life. But I remind you of Psalm 92, verse 14, is good news. They, these are older people, they will still bear fruit in old age. And they will stay fresh and green. Who knows, perhaps some of the greatest fruitfulness will come in the final quarter of life. But that's part of the good news that's reflected through Scripture that not only is there this message of forgiveness, but you get this message that comes through that there is an anticipated fruitfulness uh, in life as well. And then moving to number three, part of the fruitfulness includes not only Are we forgiven? And we start on this journey, and as we're on this journey, there's a great deal of fruitfulness. But because we are on this journey, and we we identify with the message of Jesus Christ, there is a promise that about the future. And the point number three is, of this good news, is there is a future. Uh, There are a number of references to the future in Mark, with most, if not all, and most of them, again, referencing heaven. I selected Mark chapter 12, 25, and 27. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, for they will be like the angels in heaven. He is not God of the dead, but he is God of the living. Now, what I just read to you is fantastic news. (laughs) You can't put a value on what I just read and the truth behind those few words there. That is incredibly good news. 
There are all kinds of people dying who die without even that knowledge and that awareness. But when the dead rise, when the dead rise, they will, there, there, there is a resurrection that is being implied by this. I mean, I'm all into this. I'm all into this message about the resurrection, and I, I know what we as believers are. I'm staking my whole life on the empty tomb and the implications that has for me, for my family, for you, for the funerals I might be involved in officiating this next year, and for all of humanity, this news right here that, that when the dead rise, there is a resurrection. You know, Judy and I, we and others of you have visited the Holy Land, and there's a place that you can visit, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and maybe the resurrection happened there, or maybe it's in the garden tomb. There are a couple of different places where it suggests that the resurrection happened, but Whichever one is right, I don't know, but it's, it's probably the most important piece of, parcel of land in this whole planet uh, because of what happened there in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as Christ was raised from the dead, and as Romans 8 speaks about this, that same Spirit who worked in Christ will also work in us to bring us that same resurrection as well. When the dead rise, that is good news. It also says here we'll be like angels in heaven. Not sure what that will be like, but it sounds fairly interesting. So I'm into that. I, all kinds of adventures that don't get my attention, but this one does. Judy, I will be an angel in heaven. Do you know that? <laughs> there you go. She's already an angel, my wife. You will be an angel in heaven. Kind of hard to believe, I suspect, for some of you, but you'll be, we'll be like angels in heaven. And to be fair to the text, it also says that we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, I'm not sure about that one, for I love marriage. I really do. And I love being married to Judy here. But I guess we'll see what it means uh, when we get there. Embracing promise about the future can generate hope and optimism and provide a counterbalance, a significant counterbalance, I might add, to all the bad news that we are exposed to. Haddon Robinson, a preacher here, uh, a writer about homiletics, he, um, he described hope in a, in a short, one, one short descriptive statement that I love. And I mean, when you hear this and you like it, it's also embedded in the sermon notes and you can pick it up from there. But here's how he said it. Hope is hearing the music of the future and faith is having the courage to dance to it. Now, relax. I'm not going to ask all of you to get up and dance here right away, so relax. You're okay. But bad news can generate anxiety. Good news, especially about the future, can generate hope and optimism. And hope is hearing the music about the future, very much engaged in the here and now, being a good sort of the lives that we have, but hope is hearing the music of the future, and faith is the courage to get up and to dance to it, believing that this is going to be true and there's hope and optimism there. So when we look at, and when, when we interact with passages of scripture, scripture which reflect the future, there really is an invitation there to get up and dance and that there would be a liberty in life. So, you know, I, I just saw this quote this last week, but you know what? To a T, it describes when I read through the book of Revelation at the turn of the year, and I study, do a personal devotional study through the book of Revelation, and I read a commentary, a new commentary related to the book of Revelation, there are some times in my study, I want to get up and dance. It's, it's fantastic news. And uh, 
it's, I know, it's funny, but, uh, but, but there's an invitation to dance when you interact with fantastic news. This is fantastic news. Or, you know, when we interact with the, that, that so popular verse out of Jeremiah, um, it's really an invitation to dance. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans not to hurt you or harm you, but to, to prosper and give you hope and, and to give you a future. And when you get that verse and you internalize that verse, there is a sense of, oh my goodness. If this is true, then, and again, that passage of Jeremiah 29 is not talking about heaven, but it's, it's talking about the future. And I guess we could pull heaven into that, but there's, there's a liberty that comes with that. Or when you go to Genesis and the story of Jacob and his dream about the stairway to heaven in Genesis chapter 28, angels were ascending and descending on this stairway. And as part of this experience, God speaks to Jacob and he winks up. Jacob says, you know what Jacob says? And this is the NIV 2011. He says, how awesome is this place? (laughs) And it's his way of saying, wow, I interacted with heaven. I interacted with God. And this is an awesome place. And he was dancing in his spirit as he said, how awesome is this interaction with God? As we move to conclusion, a study was done looking at the psychological effects of viewing negative news items. Three different 14-minute news reports were prepared for the screen. One was made entirely of negative news items. One was made up entirely of positive news items. And one was made up of items that were emotionally neutral. These reports were then shown to three different groups of people. And as anticipated, those who watched the negative news reports reported being significantly more anxious and sadder than those who watched either the positive or the neutral news reports. Not only that, the study also revealed that those who watched the negative news were more likely to see their personal worries exaggerated. Not suggesting here we shouldn't watch the news, bad news included. It's good to be informed about the world, but in so doing, we need to have the capacity to keep it in perspective. And one way is to fill our minds, our hearts, our spirit with good news. The good news of today, the good news that you have heard for the last 20, 25 minutes, is that there is forgiveness. There is fruitfulness that can be anticipated in life. And there is a future. The invitation, as suggested by Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, is that we will believe that good news. And that word believe there, by the way, is in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing belief. The way that we get into this is the way that we keep going on. We got into this by faith. We keep going on through faith. It's in the present tense. And it's inviting continuous belief in this good news, active on our part, that today... This day, 2015, that we will believe that good news. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.